Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, the last couple of weeks has been fairly hectic for me. About a week, uh, well, a little more than a week ago, my wife was, well, we're getting ready to move up to the ranch. So we're starting to pack up the stuff in our, our main house in Salt Lake City. And my wife got up early in the morning. She, I was still in bed. And she got up and she was starting to pack some items in one of the closets she was on one of those stepping stools, those two-step stepping stools that you use in your kitchen to get to the high items. She was on the top shelf of, or the top step of the stepping stool. She had her hands full above her head, and she was stepped down, and she missed the next step down, went straight down to the floor, collapsed. She felt just a collapse of her knee, and she was in terrible pain. And she called me. I don't know how long she called me. I was still asleep. And eventually I heard her, went in, and uh, well, we, we immobilized her leg. We took her down to the emergency room. They did some x-rays, and uh, we found that there was a tibia fracture. And she's out of work, and she has to stay off of her leg for at least six weeks. She cannot bend her leg. She can't even stay at our house because our our bedroom is on the second floor. Uh, three we have three bedrooms on the second floor, one bedroom in the basement, and uh, the main floor is just the kitchen and the living areas of our house. So we she cannot go upstairs easily with her crutches. So she's staying at my daughter's house, which has a a bedroom on the main floor. So it's uh it's a bit difficult right now. I'm trying to get everything done to, to finish up the uh, addition to the summer home and uh, get things moved up there. And, you know, you don't realize how, how much of a disadvantage not being able to walk is. It's, uh, it's very difficult. We're taking her to the doctor's office again today for another x-ray to see how the knee see how the knee is is healing and hopefully we'll have good news from that they're they're not operating on it yet they said they wouldn't even operate on it anyway until the uh, the fracture has healed so if there is tendon or ligament damage we really won't know about that till the knee is healed they said that we could go in for an MRI but let's just wait and so we're following his advice so that's what's going on at my house right now. I've got, uh, I've still got to keep my job going. I've still got to keep the contractors working on the house. I've got so much on my plate right now. I wonder why I spend the time putting out this podcast, quite honestly, because it really does take a lot of time. But it is one of those things that I do enjoy doing, except when I feel a lot of stress like I do right now. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about turkey and the news media never really talks about this stuff i've talked about it in past podcasts how i uh, really question the massive expansion that i've seen in turkey since i've been there so let me recap uh, my experience in turkey and then 
bring you up to date with what I'm seeing in the news. When I, I sailed to Turkey originally in 2002, and when I arrived in Turkey, the Sultanahmet area was a bargain basement place to, to go get hotel rooms, and it was very close to the tourist areas of town. It was a bit run down. It felt like a real part of the city. And really, with the exception of the Turkish airport, Turkey did feel like a third world country. Well, ever since I've been in Turkey, there's been massive, massive changes, just absolutely massive changes. And I wanted to correspond this with the uh, current president, Erdogan, uh, and his, his coming to power. Now, he came to power in 2003, which was my second year in Turkey. And I remember when he was running for office, because I was there during the election, and I would be working on the boat when the boat was on the hard before I would put it in the water. And I think I was up in Ivalik at the time. And as I'm working on the boat, there'd be uh, vans with bullhorns coming through, spouting out political statements. Of course, I couldn't understand it, but I could tell there were dueling loudspeakers with the different candidates running. They would have, this was a fairly small town, they had rallies that I went up to and just observed. I didn't understand what they were talking about. But there was a lot of hoopla for the election. And he was elected uh, in 2003 as prime minister. He served as prime minister uh, from 2003 to 2014, where at that point in time, he changed the form of government and he became president pretty much for probably as long as he wants to be president, because I think he's changed the electoral process where it makes it very difficult uh, for him to be voted out of office, like most incumbent politicians even here in America. Try to get rid of a local senator that doesn't retire. I mean, they have such an advantage in, uh, in elections over anybody challenging them. So he's been there, and so during his reign, he has pretty much overseen a massive a massive uh, infrastructure improvement of the uh, of the country and also he's opened up ownership of of property to non-europeans or to non-turkish citizens i meant to say during that period of time so there's been a massive or there was a massive real estate speculation boom as well if you go back and listen to my podcast where i interviewed my my long-lost friend, John Quinn, he talks about uh, back in the 70s coming into Bodrum, and it was just a sleepy little fishing town with a big harbor, and, I mean, there really was nothing there at the time. And if you go there today, it's like Las Vegas. I mean, it is so overdeveloped. It is a massive tourist destination for a lot of people, and it bears no resemblance to what it was back in the 70s. And John went back to, to Bodrum, and it's changed a lot since he went back there with me. There's, it's probably doubled in size since, since he went with me uh, to, to Bodrum. But, of course, John has passed away, and his memories, uh, you know, his stories are all that I have to share with you. But he talked about going to Bodrum, and he talked about a great story he had, an experience he had in Bodrum in that, in that interview that I did with him a long time ago. Nonetheless, let's get back to Turkey. So I've seen massive building of highways, massive building of uh, new airports. Everywhere you go, there's a new airport. 
There's a brand new airport built on the uh, Asian side of the Bosphorus in Istanbul, a uh, world-class airport. There was a brand new airport built down in Izmir. I mean, the first time I flew to Izmir, it was just this little podunk building, and now it's a massive new airport. There's been freeways built everywhere. There's been massive infrastructure. And, and, you, and if, when I go into Istanbul now and go down to the Satalnamet area, it's now an expensive place to stay. They've reconstructed the entire area, uh, new roads, new infrastructure, new everything. So it's expensive to stay in the Satalnamet area now. Uh, so there's been massive expansion. And of course, this has been done by borrowing money and spending it on infrastructure, which could be easily argued as a, as a good uh, reason to borrow money. I, I, I tend to agree with borrowing money for infrastructure more than I agree to borrow money to pay uh, welfare recipients. That makes no sense to me, but to, to improve our interstate highway, borrowing money for infrastructure, which is an asset that gives back over a long period of time, versus pissing it away on, on social services, uh, seems to be what government should be doing. But a few years ago, I made the point that I never walk away with money with Turkish lira when I leave the country. I always get rid of my Turkish lira when I leave the country because while well, I have been traveling in Turkey, first of all, when I first went there, they had the Turkish lira which was a million Turkish lira to the dollar. Then they eliminated that currency, and they had the new Turkish lira, which was uh, <laughs> one million of the old Turkish lira, bought you one of the new Turkish lira. And then I came back, then I left, went to Croatia, came back a few years later, and then they'd, they'd taken that currency out and put a new currency in. And I don't know why they did it. Maybe there was some counterfeiting going on with the... Uh, the new Turkish lira, but nonetheless, I've had three different currencies uh, while I've been traveling in Turkey. Erdogan comes from the Anatolia region of Turkey, which is a much more conservative region than, uh, the, than the coast of Turkey. The coast of Turkey has a lot of tourism. It's much more liberal. You go down to Bodrum, you wouldn't think you're in Turkey at all for the most part, except for the call to prayers that come out what, however many times, four or five times a day that the call to prayer comes out and is blasted over the loudspeakers everywhere in Turkey. But other than that, you would not think that it's, uh, that it's, it's well, I mean, it's, it's obviously Muslim, but it's very liberal Muslim as opposed to the Anatolia region of Turkey, which is very conservative. They're, they're much more conservative as far as their Islam religion goes. So I've got a chart up here. I'm going to tell you what's happened to the Turkish lira over the last 10 years. And this is taking into effect the uh, changes in the various Turkish lira. Yeah, in 2008, about 10 years ago, the Turkish lira was trading at 1.21 to the dollar. And today it's trading at 4.47 to the dollar. So imagine if you put in a big infrastructure project and you borrowed money and uh, you would borrow money from the bank, which the bank might in turn borrow the money in the foreign currency market. So the bank would loan you Turkish lira. If you're a Turkish citizen, they'd loan you Turkish lira at a high interest rate. But the bank in turn would borrow that money from 
uh, a foreign bank and they would borrow it they would borrow dollars so they would borrow dollars convert it to Turkish lira and then loan that money to you or if you're a big corporation you would tap the foreign the foreign markets and borrow directly in dollars or euros because those are considered hard currencies well now you've got to pay it back in addition to the extremely high interest rates that you have to pay to to a turkish bank now if you borrowed in dollars you've got to pay back that money in dollars so imagine the problem you're going to have even a fantastic business over the last 10 years could you pay four times what you originally borrowed in a loan even if it's a great business and it seems to i've been concerned about this for years because i've seen this massive debt funded expansion that we've seen in turkey and it's not just roads and infrastructure it's been massive spending on speculative hotels yacht lift where i leave my boat the first time i went there it had a tiny little slip it um it had an old travel lift i think a 20 ton travel lift and it was uh and when they propped my boat up they just used posts and wedges and it was on dirt and now i go back there they've uh they've expanded to where they got th- uh two major slips much wider than the old ones they've got three travel lifts and i think the f- the biggest one's over 120 ton travel lift the entire yard has been paved all the cradles are steel they've torn down the old facilities and built new facilities they told tore down the office and built new offices now if they did this with cash flow that's one thing but my suspicion is that they borrowed money to do this and of course i left turkey last year and i don't plan on going back anytime soon as long as this uh political uncertainty exists and and i'm not alone a lot of people have left turkey when i traveled around turkey last fall before we put the boat in there were two hotels that we visited where we were the only people in the entire hotel one was near um selcek which is close to ephesus the hotel my two friends and i uh mike allgood mike epperson and i stayed in we were the only people staying in oh i don't know but this is probably a 30 room hotel so we took uh, three rooms of 30 rooms that was in selcek and in the other hotel which is out in the meander river valley we were the only ones walking in and the only ones staying there as well so the tourism has dropped precipitously on the uh, the coastal region of turkey so anyway i've i've always considered this uh, a trouble spot in the world economy and the news media really is not covering it strangely enough i tried to uh do a search of of um different articles today and there are a few that allude to the problems of turkey let me go through them and this and, and now we're going back to 2012 in 2012 the economist said turkey ha- has one of the world's zippiest economies but it's too reliant on hot money and it goes through and talks about uh how the loans to turkey for their infrastructure improvements a lot of it has come from hot money which is hedge funds and banks which uh that money will disappear in an instant if there's any fear of the economy 
So that one goes way back to 2014. Oh, excuse me. This one goes, this article goes way back to April 7th, 2012 in The Economist. I found an article from the uh, Harvard Business Review dated July 8th, 2016, written by H. Arkin Unver. And I don't know what type of name Unver is. It could be Turkish for all I know. But he has a different opinion. He thinks Turkey's doing just fine, and he gives a few reasons for it. And this is after the Ataturk airport attack where I was waylaid in in Toronto because I was flying over on the day that that attack occurred. And by the way, since then, I think Delta has quit flying to Turkey. I'm not sure, but I know um, they did for a period of time. If they've opened it back up again, I'm not sure, to Istanbul. But anyway, he makes the argument that uh, that the terrorism ha- is having little impact on private consumption, that the in Turkish economy, a lot of their economy is due to pro- to uh, consumption, individual consumption, and the biggest businesses in Turkey are banks, uh, which is a warning <laughs> sign by itself. Some of the largest businesses in Turkey, I think. Uh, Four or five of the top ten businesses in Turkey are banks. Actually, I've got that number right here. Let me pull it up here. Right, here it is. Okay, Turkish Banksy is the top, the largest business in Turkey. It's number one. Guarantee Bankasy is number two. Koch Holding, which is a conglomerate, is number three. And Koch Holding owns uh, the biggest grocery store chain in Turkey, a big bus chain in Turkey, they might own some marinas in Turkey, but they own a, they're a big conglomerate. Akbank is number three, another bank. Sabachi Holdings is a conglomerate. I'm not familiar with them. Uh, next one is Hawk Bank, and then the next one after that is Vaki Bank. So out of the top one, two, three, four, five, six, seven companies in Turkey, only two of them are non-banks. So they're very, very dependent on the what I call the, the rent-sinking class of an economy. Banks don't really create anything. They just shuffle things around. They just shuffle money around and collect a fee for that. So where was I going with this? I was talking about this Harvard Business Review comment on Turkey. Then he goes on to say, Turkey's stability is threatened, but so is everyone else's. And he says, in some ways, the Turkish economy relies on regional and global uncertainties and that it offers a comparatively better place to do business. So despite terror attacks and domestic instability, Turkey's financial institutions, cultures, and systems are better positioned than their counterpart in neighboring countries. I totally agree with this. In fact, I always wonder when I've traveled around Turkey if a lot of this real estate speculation is due to demand by other Muslim countries where they want to have a bailout place, which is still uh, Muslim or part of their culture, similar cultures, but doesn't have the dictators of their own country. And, of course, now Turkey's creating its own quasi-dictator as well. So that may or may not hold true in the future. But I've always thought that maybe a lot of the real estate speculation, besides the Brits that love to get down in the sun and buy their uh, their flats, there, well, there's a lot of that that's going on in Turkey, that a lot of foreigners aren't also, foreign Muslims aren't also buying 
uh, apartments and places to uh, to go to in the event of instability in their own countries. So, so I don't know how much of their real estate speculation is for uh, Muslim travelers or Muslim foreigners and how much is for other European travelers and American travelers. I don't know very many Americans that have a summer home in, in Turkey, but I know there's a lot of Brits that have summer flats or or winter flats in Turkey. And in the winter, Turkey's not that great of a place to be. It's as cold as probably, um, not quite as cold as New York, but still gets pretty darn cold. I know I saw pictures of yacht lift uh, that they took that winter where there was about a foot of snow on the boats. Of course, it melted very quickly, but it was enough that uh, you can see that it does get cold in the winter in Turkey. It talks about, this article talks, terrorism impacts tourism, but not for as long as you might think. Well, my experience is, yeah, it's affecting tourism, and it's longer than you think. Uh, Political momentum is pro-business. He paints basically a pretty positive picture of Turkey, which is another point of view. One thing about Turkey is they do have a very young workforce, and a very young workforce is the type of workforce that America had back in the 1950s, right after World War II, where they are spending money on houses, on appliances, on uh, lots of things that you buy when you're when you're young, but you don't buy when you're older. So that is one of the, the positives for Turkey. And when I travel around Turkey, I see Turks stepping up to the uh, kiosk to get money out of the money, cash machines everywhere I go. There's, it's very seldom that I go by a cash machine that there's not a Turk standing in front pulling out money. So they do tend to spend their money. Uh, that's a younger economy. But again, this, to me, what scares me about Turkey is so much of that, uh, that boom, this boom that they've had over the last 10 years, last, uh, yeah, last 10 years, really, has been funded by borrowed money, just like America's housing bubble was funded by borrowed money. And I'm not seeing very many alarms being raised about the Turkish economy, but I did listen to a podcast the other day, this is from Macro Voices, and if you like to listen to podcasts, this is a business podcast. This is a one that deals with the economy, macroeconomic trends. I recommend it highly. It's from Macro Voices. They had a guest on here, Russell Napier, and I'm going to share with you a small portion of the interview that they did with Russell Napier. So here it goes. Very briefly, because I suspect we'll come back to it. Uh, are these credit events that are breaking out in various places in the world? Remember, the United States dollar is heavily borrowed across the planet, and also heavily borrowed by people who don't actually generate U.S. dollar revenue. The rise in the dollar, the rise in interest rates, the rise in the spread of cost of borrowing dollars in Europe is causing some distress. My particular bugbear on this is Turkey, uh, where I think the whole country is basically beginning to the edge of defaulting on its debts. It's a $432 billion credit risk, Turkey, on the global financial system. I think it's important. And history shows one thing and one thing clearly. If you get into a situation of a credit event, particularly if it pertains to people who've borrowed dollars and don't actually have them or generate them, then you get a strong dollar. We get an unwinding of that situation. And I think and if we were very unlucky, it could spread beyond Turkey into other emerging markets. So that would be the two kind of kind of building blocks for saying, why the dollar is probably going up and not down. 
So there is what Russell Napier is. So this is a professional that's starting to raise alarms about the Turkish economy and how it might affect the world economy. And it's the only one I've really, well, I shouldn't say the only one. I, I listened to another podcast and I tried to find it, but I couldn't find it. But I know that there's been a couple times in the last week that I've seen investment professionals start raising the red flag about uh, the Turkish economy and how it might affect the global economy. So this morning I come in and I see Bloomberg put out a new news article and it says Erdogan plans to tighten his grip on Turkey's economy by Guy Johnson and James Hurtling. So this is dated May 14, 2018. And it goes on, it says Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said he intends to tighten his grip on the economy and take more responsibility for monetary policy if he wins an election next month. With the Turkish lira at record lows against the dollar and down this year against all 17 major currencies tracked by Bloomberg, Erdogan told Bloomberg TV in London on Monday that after the vote transforms Turkey into a full presidential system, he expects the central bank will have to heed his calls for lower interest rates. The central bank's key rate is now 13.5% compared with 10.9% consumer price inflation. So their official rate of inflation is 10.9%, and uh, the banks can only borrow at 13.5%. Then it goes on to say, when the people fall into difficulties because of monetary policy, who are they going to hold accountable? The 64-year-old president said in the interview, they'll hold the president accountable since they'll ask the president about it. We have to give off the image of a president who's influential on monetary policies. That may make some uncomfortable, he said, but we have to do it because it's those who rule the state who are accountable to the citizens. The lira slid to its weakest level over the dollar after his remarks, down 0.9% to 4.4045 down 14% this year. Then the article continues on. But basically, he's going to tell the central banks what they're supposed to do. Now, how do I feel about central banks? First of all, I (laughs) I personally think central banks are an abomination, especially in the U.S., because the central banks, which were set up as a secret agreement, in secret on Jekyll Island, really is a... It's an organization for banks. It's owned by the member banks. And who owns the member banks? The largest stockholders of the member banks, which would be the Rothschilds, the Mellons, and the Morgans. So the central bank really is controlled by the wealthiest of the wealthiest people, and they are basically a, um, an organization to preserve the big banks. I mean, that's the way I feel about it. Central banks supposedly are responsible for for maintaining value of the currency, yet the U.S. dollar under the U.S. central bank has declined in value over 98% since the central bank has been in business. They want inflation. They always want inflation, which makes it easier for the banks to pay off the loans that they borrow. And so they never want deflation, which benefits the consumer. They only want inflation, which hurts the consumer and is a hidden tax on the consumer, uh, where deflation would be a a hidden 
uh, increase in real wages for the consumer. So no, I'm not a big fan of central banks. I think central banks are part of the big problem in the world economy in general, but that's just my own political opinion. So anyway, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up. Bottom line is that we're now starting to see macroeconomists concerned about the rising dollar and how it Im impacts currencies such as the Turkish lira. And of all the currencies, the Turkish lira may be the, um, the snowflake that starts the next world economic avalanche. We don't know, but that's just my thoughts. Uh, but I do have a lot of concerns about the Turkish economy and the banks that are stupid enough to loan money to the uh, to the Turkish uh, to the Turkish uh, banks, because what's going to happen, of course, if our banks loan money to the Turkish banks and the Turkish banks can't pay back that money, guess what? They're going to go to the Fed and say, "Hey, you need to print up some more money to make us whole," just like they did the last time around. Banks don't seem to be held accountable for bad investment decisions like you and I are. All right, enough of my. Uh, <laughs> enough of my editorial on the Turkish economy. If you have your own thoughts and you want to have, and I don't want to really turn this into a, um, an investment podcast, but if you have your own thoughts and you want to come on and express your own thoughts and talk about it, I'm more than willing to listen. I'm always willing to be convinced if I'm wrong. But again, I've spent 10 years in Turkey, and I've seen what's happened in Turkey. So if you're going to come on, you better have some experience of boots on the ground to counteract it, not just something you read in the newspaper. All right, today I don't have any questions for the mailbag, but if you want to support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon at, at patreon.com backslash medsailor. Also, if you do me a big favor, go into the iTunes directory and write a review for the podcast. And lastly, if you're studying for any of the ASA courses, I have audio lessons, which will help you prepare for the written portion of the ASA exam 101, the 103, or the 104. They are available at the website, medsailor.com. If you have any thoughts, suggestions, write me, franz1 at medsailor.com. Now get out there and go sailing. So I'm back with Andrew Vick. For the second part of our exploration of Croatia, Andrew's been in Croatia since 2008, or is it 2007, Andrew? Uh, 2008 was okay. uh, my first voyage in there. So you've been up and down the coast many times, and, and Andrew was kind enough to share with me a KMZ file of all his tracks and travels through the, uh, through the Adriatic over the years. And, and you want to offer that to, to our listeners. So why don't you give them information on how they can get this? Yeah, so this KMZ file, which you would use Google Earth to open, uh, it's available from my website, which is uh, www.sailgea, that's S-A-I-L-G-E-J-A.com slash Adriatic.kmz. So you just type that in. The KMZ file should just pop nice into your downloads folder and then just pop that into Google Earth. And uh, you'll see all my tracks from all the years and, uh, you know, hours and dozens of hours of research, uh, you know, and, and bookmarks I've made of, of points of interest, especially in Croatia where there are just hundreds and hundreds of, you know, potential anchorages and ports and everything. Yeah, and that's uh, you know, uh, it's interesting because I tend to open up different ones and I, I see a pattern of where you go in and out of different little villages over and over and over again. So you definitely have a few favorite spots that you hit over the years. 
And uh, if you open up all of his, his legs, it's just a, a spider web. It's just a whole spider web <laughs> of tracks all over the Adriatic. So you've been, you've been pretty much uh, uh, not everywhere, but most, uh, most everywhere in the Adriatic. So it's, it's good to get your, your body of knowledge to share with the, with the listeners here. So the last time we talked, and we may as well tell, tell everybody how I screwed up yesterday. So this is the second time I'm going through this with Andrew because yesterday I started the interview. I got a voice check. Everything looked good, and we started the interview. And 45 minutes later, I realized I hadn't, I hadn't pushed the record button the second time on my, my uh, Zoom H4N, and we just wasted that. So we're coming back and redoing it again today. So thanks, Andrew, for for putting up with my major blunder there. Yeah, no problem. I'm sure we'll have some deja vu moments this time around, but uh, yeah, no problem. Okay. So we started, the last time we left off, you uh, you had gone to the little town of Rob, which is the next island just north of Pog. I think it's, the, yeah, the next island just north of Pog, P-A-G. And let's just start from there and give us some of your favorite routes, continuing on north, uh, with the eventual destination of Venice. Yeah, yeah, because I understand that's probably going to be your route uh, this year, something similar to this. So, yeah, so I guess, yeah, up to our last interview, we got as far as Rob. Rob is super cool old, um, you know, uh, medieval town, uh, Venetian style. Um, so you've probably been there a night or two. I've and, never been uh, there. No, that's one I haven't been to. So that'll be a new one I definitely want to hit this next summer. Yeah, 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 definitely do it. And if, if at that point, you know, if, if, if we're thinking Venice, uh, you have a couple of options. Uh, if you have the time, uh, you could kind of keep venturing north through the Dalmatian Islands, you know, and eventually you hit a dead end. Um, so we're approaching here what's called the Gulf of Kvarner, K-V-A-R-N-E-R. And, um, and as, so as, as you see on Google Earth, as you go north, you know, past the island of Kirk, you, you kind of hit a dead end up uh, near the bigger town of Rijeka. And next door to Rijeka is another town called Opatia. And I think it's a great, great town to visit. They have kind of a, kind of a modern hotel that has a marina, and that's uh, typically where you'd stay. There really is, isn't anywhere to anchor up there. But Opatia is kind of cool because it, um, you know, it was kind of built up by Austrian noblemen. And it's just, uh, it doesn't look like the rest of Croatia. It has kind of its own sort of kind of architectural feel to it, all these you know, villas from the 19th century. So. Now, so look, I look at it, it looks like it's on a very steep hillside. And uh, is that correct? Is, am, I, am I reading Google Earth correctly? It looks like it's on a hillside, and you've got, oh, maybe four rows of houses behind there. So are all these nice houses built up right along the shoreline? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, that whole peninsula there, you know, that's the Istria Peninsula, and the whole east coast of it um, is very steep. You know, you imagine the roads there are kind of James Bond-looking, just this, you know, steep winding roads, you know, on this hillside that just kind of drops right into the sea, so... So super cool. Scenery is great. The, the town is uh, definitely worth checking out. So, so, so that's one option is, you know, out of Rob uh, is just heading north. Of course, you know, that's kind of a, it's about 40 miles and there's plenty to see on the way. So, you know, the, the island, of, island of Kirk and the main town of Kirk, this is spelled K-R-K, you know, one of these Croatian words that doesn't have vowels in it. Um, but the town of Kirk is about halfway up, about 20 miles. And, you know, Kirk is awesome too. You know, great old medieval town. 
Okay, would you go around the uh, the west side of Kirk, or have you been up the east side of Kirk, or is there not much to see on the east side of Kirk? Because I see, I don't see a track on the east side, just on the west side of Kirk. Maybe. I'd yeah, I've never been up the east side of Kirk. Um, there is a big bridge. You see how the island of Kirk kind of really narrows towards the mainland. Oh, yes. And, okay. um, and there is a big bridge. You can totally go up there. Um, yeah, I guess there, I haven't read too much uh about any any major attractions on on that side of the island and you know anything facing northeast so the whole east coast of kirk faces northeast and then you, know, you always have this bora potential uh, you know that crazy wind oh yeah and then you're they, on the they... lee shore at that point in time so yeah mm -hmm. yeah so i found it's just you know the, the more obvious route is definitely going between kirk and Thress. so okay all right yeah and i've taken a um I, I once rented a car, or actually, no, I took a bus. I think I told you this the last yesterday when we talked. I took a bus from um, Zagreb down to get on my boat, which I'd wintered in in Cress or Tress, and uh, the bus goes across that bridge. Then it goes across the island of Kirk, and then you catch a ferry on the bus to get over to Tress, Cress, and about five miles away from the town of of Cress. The bus I was on had a engine fire, so everybody had to abandon the uh, bus, and we had to sit on the side of the road till they set, sent another bus up to ke to uh, to get us back, finish the journey down to Crest. And that's that's another little town that's like we were talking about is just a delightful, gorgeous little town. So maybe if you want to go from Rob, you might uh, I might do Rob uh, to to. Uh, to Cress, and then from Cress, uh, that's on the other side, though, so I'd have to sort of go all the way around. Actually, it's better to go to Kirk, then up to uh, Opaji, Op yeah, Opatia, Op Opatia, and then work my way back down to Cress, and then continue around the corner there. That's probably what I'll do. And that's basically what I did, you know, uh, and if you're following along, the, uh, the 2014 track is... Um, the one I used to, to head up uh, back to, to revisit Venice. So, yeah, when I was down in Opati, I came yeah, back down the coast, definitely pulled into Tres Town. Uh, I think it's a, one of the cutest places on, you know, on, the whole, on the whole coast. So, yeah, Tres is great, and I know you wintered there, but yeah, I think you'll be happier now wintering in Dubrovnik. At least you have an airport pretty close by, you know, no ferries or buses uh, to deal with. Yeah, I'm trying to decide if I work my way all the way up to Venice. That's going to take me. In fact, I started working on my route last night after we, after we talked, and I start, uh, I start thinking about this, and I think, well, you know, if that'll t that, if I want to enjoy my trip up, I'll uh, I'll use pretty much at least you know six weeks going north. And I'm going to try to find some place up in Italy to winter the boat, so I don't have to come all the way back down. Do you? Uh, I know there's some Italian boatyards up uh, uh, up up on the northern coast of Italy that are fairly reasonable, but I haven't uh, done any research on that yet. So it's something I'm going to have to do. So if anybody out there has some suggestions, be sure to write me. Yeah, I think I've heard of a cruiser spending a winter in, I think it's called Monfalcon or okay. something like that. Yeah. And that's kind of way up there in the very far reaches. Actually, a little bit beyond Trieste, way, way up, um, tucked into the nor most northern part of the Adriatic Sea. So maybe that's an option for you. And yeah. You and could I... also remind me, I have a connection in Venice, you know, a sailor who, you know, takes a, 
groups out of Venice, and he probably knows pretty well too where one could winter a boat in the north. So remind me, and I'll I'll track him down. Okay, for some that, advice. Yeah, that'd be great. And I'm just zoomed in on that marine up there, and it does look like it's got a pretty hard, pretty big hard standing area. So that might definitely be a possibility. So, all right. Okay. So continuing on. So going going north from Rob, we've got uh, three different spots that you recommend to uh, check out. And then continuing around the corner of the uh, Istria Peninsula, what do you suggest? Yeah, well, I was also going to say, you know, if, if you're in Rob and you don't feel like continuing north, you can also go take more of a westerly route uh, and kind of skip some of the northern reaches of, uh, of the um, Dalmatian Islands. And, you know, you can go through uh, Lachine. You know, they have, all, they have those uh, opening bridges uh, right. at Lachine, actually two of them. Okay, I knew there's so, one opening bridge. Where's the other opening bridge in, in Lusinge? Yeah, so one is pretty much right at the main town of Mali Lushin, mm-hmm. which, uh, which is a nice little bay. Yeah, a pretty good-sized bay, actually, big marina or boating area. Yeah, um, it's this, a great little town. I've visited that several times. That's a great, great little town. And also one to have worked on. I had my, my engine repaired in that town one time. So, Okay, so where's the other one then? You know, the other uh, opening bridge is actually connects the island island of Loshin with the island of uh, Tres in a town, in a little village called Osor, O-S-O-R. That's the other sort of bridge that, that uh, opens up twice a day for uh, smaller boats. Oh, there, way north. Okay, yeah. All right. So, And oh. both of those are really handy shortcuts for, uh, you know, getting through. All right, yeah, yeah. And I... For some reason, it seems like I took, I rented a car and drove up there and checked that out one time. In fact, now that I've zoomed in on it, yeah, I've I've driven there. I've never taken my boat through there that I'm aware of. I might have, but it, so it looks does look a little familiar. So you have to wait for those to open up. Yeah, I think typically it's like nine in the morning and five in the evening. It's kind of fun because you know the boats are just kind of lining up, and then uh, somehow people know a certain direction goes first, and then. You know, once they're all through, you know, because because these these canals are not very wide. I mean, my my beam is about 11 feet, and I don't think the the canal is more than I don't know 18 feet wide. So, something something to na- navigate when you're sober. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's uh, if it's at five. Uh, getting on in the evening, you probably had a, a couple beers sitting around waiting to go through anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that Sometimes. would be yeah. So that would be one to go north on. Go north through there and then head straight over to the uh, tip of the peninsula, the Istria Peninsula, then if you wanted to do that. then that, That's another possibility. Yeah. 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 That's, I mean, that's the beauty of Croatia. They're just kind of islands and so many des- countless destinations in every direction, um, at least until you get to the southern tip of, uh, of the Istria Peninsula. So, of course, for me, I think Pula is kind of one of the sort of main, main draws there in the very southern part of Istria. Uh, Pula is that uh, a little bit of an uh, industrial town. The harbor isn't all that pretty, but they have that arena, that uh, very uh, Colosseum-esque uh, arena right there in the town, kind of. And you see it perfectly from the arena. You, you sit in the marina or anchor out, and you're, you're right there under that big, big arena, which is it's really cool. You know, yesterday I said I'd been there, but as I look at this, I don't think I've been there. I've, I think I've gone right by this uh, Pula, so I've never been there before. Yesterday we were talking, I thought, oh, yeah, I've been in there. And then as I look at this and I zoom in on this, I don't think I've been there. So it was uh, the next town to the north that I've spent uh, a night in. So I'll have to mm-hmm. make, a, make a point of stopping in there. 
Yeah, do it. It's great. You know, there's an airport, there's a marina. Um, I mean, you know, it's, we, we don't go to marinas too much. I mean, one thing, I guess, for my 36-foot boat in Croatia, I mean, typical marina fee is going to be between about 60 and 70 euros, which is, what, about $70, $80 these days. So, you know, it's not, not somewhere you pull in regularly. But um, you felt that was worth the money then for pulling in for a night there then? Yeah, but it's kind of convenient. Um, you know, you, prior to that, you've probably been, you know, anchoring out a lot or, you know, staying in small, small villages. So at some point, you, you know, you got to do laundry and you want to probably wash down the boat. Of course, you need to pick up water. So, and Pool actually has an airport that is served by a bunch of kind of the, more of the budget airlines in Europe. So you can, it's a good, you know, decent thought for crew transfer. And just seeing that amphitheater, or not amphitheater, but the, uh, the arena, the Coliseum is, uh, yeah, it is totally worth it. Yeah, so, it looks like it's so. really close to the marina too. It looks like it's like, you know, within a quarter mile of the marina. Yeah, it is. In fact, they do a lot of concerts and other special events, movies and things. Yeah. I think when I was there in 2014, uh, some old band called Status Quo was having a concert. I think there's some English rockers from who knows when, before my time. Um, <laughs> but they were doing a big show, so we just sat in the marina. You know, we heard, heard the whole concert from, you know, from the boat. So, so. But right. no, no, definitely worth a stop. All right, so Pula's on my list then. The center of the marina. Yeah, I actually could get a picture of that one, but all the other pictures are blanked out now when I zoom in here. They're, they're showing there, and uh, when you click on a picture, it says, oh, now we no longer have these pictures. So, eh. Yeah, I don't know why they tease us anymore by putting those old little symbols in there, which don't lead us anywhere anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah when they got rid of the whole panoramio thing. The bummer. Yeah, so Google sucked in all this knowledge, this geographic knowledge of you individually, and then... Uh, then de deleted all the information, but I'm sure they still kept that information on where you, where the individuals have been, so they can market to you. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So of course, so you've done your night in Pula. You've changed your crew, maybe, or at least gotten proper showers and some laundry done. Um, and you pull out. So, like I said, in Pula, you don't you you know the harbor isn't very nice. You're not going to find a place to swim or anything. So so once you're out there, you, you might be tempted just a couple of miles out of Pula, you have these islands, the Brioni Islands. And yeah, and I'm looking at those. It looks like there's lots of little anchorages in there. There are. Now, this is kind of a unique spot. This little cluster of islands, uh, you know, the old Yugoslavian leader, Tito, he had kind of a big, a big villa or a big, I mean, this was his private kind of royal estate, uh, this cluster of islands. And, um, you know, of course, he's, he's, he's long gone, but it's still some kind of like national park. Or, I mean, you can take tours, but, but one time I did anchor. I mean, there's some really tempting-looking anchorages, and we were, you know, we were ready for a swim. So we, uh, we pulled off and anchored, and then you know, a patrol boat came pretty quick and uh, you know, demanding to see our papers and everything and, and then yelling at us saying, hey, this is you know, off-limits. You can't anchor here. There's going to be a fine. You know, he talked about, I don't know, a $200, 1,000 kuna fine, which I guess is about $150. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking at your track, and I see you went into one little bay, and then turned around and came out, and then came up and and uh, looks. Oh, you know what? It looks like these are the ferry tracks I'm seeing here. It's not your track; it's ferry tracks. So, so that one little bay that you pulled into is where they stopped and said, "Get out of here, huh?" You know, it shows on the 2009 track if you have that one clicked yeah, on. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, went in there, you know, we dropped the anchor, beautiful bay, there's one other boat in there, we swam, and then, yeah, yeah, then that patrol boat came. So, so they, they demanded our papers, and I was really reluctant to hand over the papers, because once you give them your sort of, you know, your, your cruising permit, you know, you're then, then you're really stuck. <laughs> uh, so I tried to kind of hold off on that. 
that. And then finally, the guy, you know, my boat isn't very, uh, I don't know, my boat's a little rundown, a little beat up from uh, a few ocean crossings before I owned it. And the guy, you know, they kind of came up after a while, and um, yeah, after first demanding the, you know, the the hundred and fifty dollars, he comes and whispers, "said, you know, but yeah, we could probably do this for about thirty bucks you know, if we do cash." <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for taking care of this problem for me. Really appreciate your work you did for us. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I negotiated him down to twenty twenty dollars, which he accepted, and uh, off they went, and off I went. So. Okay, so it seems to me when I was going by there, when I was reading on 777, when I sailed by this group of islands before, it did talk about this as being a uh, uh, place where Tito did have his, his uh, 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 you know, his villa. And, it, it, and I think it did warn me off of going in there, but, but it also said there was a big windspout, wind or water, excuse me, water spout that went through there and destroyed his villa a few years ago too. So, unless oh I, wow, hadn't heard about yeah. that. Yeah. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. But yeah, I went right by there, but uh, I didn't go in there. But boy, it sure does look tempting. And it does. No, it's beautiful. You can understand why Tito, uh, you know, you know, put his little estate there. I think he even brought like farm animals. Like there were at some point giraffes walking around or some some crazy thing like that. <laughs> <laughs> All so. Right. And those, so that's kind of the main, you know, aside from those islands, you know, the west coast of Istria doesn't have, you know, Croatia is just blessed with islands. I mean, wherever you sail, there are islands in every direction, anchorages, you know, but and suddenly here on this coast, you don't really have that luxury anymore. It's more of a, you're kind of following the coast, um, and there are just certain stops that uh, just kind of make sense, just kind of distance-wise. So, and the first one after leaving Pula is, uh, is actually one of the really coolest towns on the whole in all of Croatia, which is called Ravine. I'm just going to measure here, you know, what that distance is, but it's, it's not, not all that far. I mean, it's just 16 miles, you know, pretty, pretty easy, relaxed day of getting up to Ravine. Um, but that's, to me, you know, Ravine is like, you know, everyone talks about Split, Dubrovnik, Var, you know, but uh, Ravine is, is right up there, you know, with one of these just spectacular, you know, towns set on a peninsula, on a hilly peninsula with this, you know, massive church on the top. And, um, and a few different mooring potentials, uh, potential spots to moor as well. Probably the marina being the, the smartest one, I think. So, so that's where you've stayed, is at the marina there then? In the marina, one time I tried to stay. There is a, a public key on the north side of the, of, of the town, mm-hmm. um, but it's just so exposed that, uh, remember one night we got in there, we got a spot there, and then, but at midnight we just couldn't take it anymore. There was just so much swell coming in. Mm-hmm. You know, and it doesn't take much to be pretty, you know, if you have swell coming in and you have, you know, open fetch of, you know, dozens of miles, you know, it doesn't take much to make it really uncomfortable. And you get that tug on your cleats and you're just, ah, it's, so it's actually at midnight, we just kind of, we said, hey, screw this. You know, we, in the dark, we moved the boat about a mile north. There seemed to be a, you know, a, a well-protected bay where we could just drop anchor and, and sleep a lot more peacefully and, yeah. Okay, and so Me. so right there on that uh, where that big parking lot is at, at, by the key, and it looks like that's where you stayed. Right to the to the uh, southwest side of that is where I fueled up. I refueled because there was a fuel dock right there, and mm-hmm. what, yeah. just like you're talking about, I, it was late afternoon. I went in there, I refueled, but boy, there was it was rough. I mean, it was just uncomfortable refueling. It wasn't. It it felt dangerous because there was so much surge there back and forth. But so as soon as I was done refueling, I got out of there as fast as I could. And so I don't think I'd want to stay on that north side. 
No, no. I mean, it has to be just flat calm, and you know, also you, you don't want any boats passing by. It's just, it's, yeah, yeah. The marina is better, and maybe, and there's probably some anchor potential too on the you know south of the town. Yeah, and I did anchor on the south side, so I went around the corner and I did anchor, uh, sort of on well, just out in that big bay, and even that had a little bit of uh, fetch, and but not not anywhere near like the north side of town. So so it was blowing and. Even between the town and that bay on the south side, uh, there was still a little bit of bumpiness, but not not uncomfortable. But yeah, it's not a not a place I want to stay. Um, at least you're at anchor. I mean, there's a it's another story being backed up against a, you know a concrete pier, right? As yeah, you're getting tugged and yeah. Yeah, the water's not going to do any damage. That concrete can do lots of damage. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but Ravine is great. Even land travelers. I mean, it's a little out of the way for most land travelers, you know, because most flights are going into the split or going into Dubrovnik. But if people get the chance, yeah, Ravine, <clears throat> the whole Istria Peninsula, I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're proud of their wine and all that. And I mean, it, it, it's beautiful up there. I know so. I got a map when I, I bought a map because I was going to drive up to Zagreb from, uh, from, uh, from a town that I was anchored at. Let's see, that was down at the south end. It was, uh, uh, yeah, Palmer. I was anchored at the marina at Palmer and I left my boat there and rented a car, and I bought a, a detailed map of the Istria Peninsula. And there's lots of hiking trails all over that, uh, that peninsula. People come, down, come into the Istria peninsula, peninsula just to go on hikes. And as I drove around, I thought, wow, this would be a great place just to come and, and go on long hikes if you wanted to. So, yeah, the Istria Peninsula is gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And maybe a little mini Tuscany or something, go around, yeah, hiking or do some, yeah. Tour, tour the wineries and so forth. Yeah. Okay. So, so. And, uh, you know, after, after Ravine, of course, you know, you're, you're still making your way north. Uh, for me, the next obvious stop is called Porech, P-O-R-E-C. Um, again, not too far, although, you know, the typical wind is from the northwest or from the north. So, you know, you could find that you're, you know, beating or you're or bashing into, into, into some seas. So, so definitely allow a little more little more time when you're heading up here. I think you'll see on my green track that I ended up uh, doing a few tacks. I don't have that one open. Let's see. I don't have that one open. I'll have to open that one up. That's Uh, the thick green line. But, you know, it's only nine miles up to to Porech. And Porech is, um, yeah, they have some UNESCO. There's some old monastery there that's a UNESCO site uh, that is interesting. And also, I mean, just it's one of those towns where, you know, most of the boats are moored up uh, along the town quay. And the town quay is where everything happens, you know, the, the whole world is walking by in the evenings during their stroll, and you have bars and cafes and restaurants, and just just everything right there, you know, right right behind your boat, right right off your cockpit. And uh, so you sit there, you know, you can make your own apérol spritz or something on board, and just kind of yeah, you just watch watch everyone go by. All these happy Europeans with their six weeks of vacation, just going by, you know, enjoying life. So that's not a marina. That's just a laid mooring that the the town put out then. Yes, exactly. Okay. Fairly common, you know, throughout yeah. Croatia. That so it, there is a marina there, but you have to walk. I mean, it's like a ten-minute walk from the marina. You know, I, the way I see it in Croatia, when you're if you're not smack in the middle of things, you know, something's a bit off. You know, we, we, we get so spoiled, right? <laughs> that's right. Like, but but the ten-minute walk from the marina, that's yeah. It's like ah, oh, it's usually warm and yeah. I don't know. You like being right there. It, it's also nice, you know. If you are out of beer, you can order a you know a drink from the bar right behind your boat, and they'll, they'll bring it to you. <laughs> We've right. done that a couple times. 
So that's definitely on my spot to visit next summer. Now, when I went north, the farthest north I got was uh, was what this 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 inlet, this fjord that goes in here. What's the name of this? Um, I got to zoom in to where it's going to show me this. Uh, Maybe it's called the Limsky Fjord. Yep, that's it, the Limsky Fjord. And uh, I've talked about. I told this story before. Right, right, it was getting pretty rough, and I thought, okay, where can I go? Uh, and where can I go to get out of this weather? And uh, there's a mar- there's a marina there at this big nudist colony there, and so <laughs> I pulled into that that marina, and I tied up there because it was good. It was a good marina, and this is late September, and it was uh, cold and rainy and windy. And as as you come off the uh, <laughs> as you come out of the uh, gate to the marina, it, there's a sign there there says no clothes. <laughs> fortunately it was cold enough that uh that people were wearing clothes anyway so i stayed there a night while this weather passed and then i went around the corner to a bay there just to the uh southwest of the marina and anchored there and again this, there was really unsettled weather at the time but i was still anchored there and i that was the first time and the only time that i was at anchor and this rain came down just oh hard rain though hard hard rain and i looked off to the northwest and there were two water spouts that i could see moving around in the northwest and that was the only time i've seen water spouts i've actually got a little video of the water spouts uh, somewhere on on youtube on those but uh but then i work that's as far north as i've been in croatia so anything north of that is new to me yeah that's uh that's a we said water spouts so far in this interview here. That's, uh, but yeah, that's you hear about them, in the, especially in the north of Croatia. I think there's on YouTube some, somewhere. There's a, yeah, there's also a video of it. And like you said, in the Brioni Islands, you know, they wiped out Tito's palace. And yeah, that sounds scary. Sounds like a, yeah, you got to keep your eye on the weather. It's, uh, you know, up there in the north, you know, it's pretty far north. I mean, where are we? We're about 45 degrees, you know, latitude north and. I don't know, what is that, the same as about Seattle or so? Yeah, and you start into September, and the weather just is unpredictable at that point in time. So I'm going to try to get up there uh, August and not much later than the the 1st of September this time. I just wanted to check out September because I've heard that September sailing can be so great. But after this experience, I thought, no, the late, it's probably as late as I want to go is probably the middle of September. And last year I got off the boat in the middle of September, and it was getting to be pretty lousy weather in Dubrovnik, too. So I think September, for me, is not necessarily a good month to go sailing in the Adriatic. Now, you've been there a long time, and do, have you sailed into September? You know, my very first season, you know, when I first bought this boat, I thought I was going to sail for one season and probably sell it. And uh, so I was actually on the water until about October 15th uh, in the area around Split. And um, it definitely started to cool down. I mean, it's not somewhere where I, I wouldn't continue to go that late in the season. I mean, some people, there are plenty of people who are charter. I mean, the, the rates come down in the shoulder season. So there's still, you know, plenty of boats out uh, even into October. But I don't know, you know, the days are shorter, the weather's cooler. You know, there, you know there's higher frequency of, you know, funky weather, storms and such and bora wind. So, yeah, I think... But although plenty of people do have a good time into September, although I think I usually typically, I typically wrap it up, you know, very early September. Okay. Yeah, I think that's the prudent thing to do from, from my little experience in, in the Adriatic. 
Yeah, last summer yeah, we. And the more up... north you go, it's even more important. I mean, the further north you go, I mean, the shorter the season is. So even up here, where you know, Istria Peninsula, Venice area, I mean, yeah, that's that's even more impacted by you know early season or, or late summer bad weather. Yeah. All right, so we're heading up, uh, and I guess we go up a little farther north, then, don't we? Well, we're running out of Croatian coastline. We are almost at the very northern reaches of uh, Croatia. So um, I think just a few miles north of Poreć um, is a town called Umag, and that's your final place to um, – that's actually 14 miles – is your final checkout point. This is where you uh, – you know, if you're going to not turn back and stay in Croatia, if you're going to leave Croatia, you've got to go into the, uh, into the marina there. You take a side tie on this um, you know, big – Big customs dock, customs pier, and then uh, right there at the pier, they have a little a little hut where your police and immigration, everything you need is is right there for a very easy checkout. Yeah, so. we talked about this yesterday, and uh, I'm going to describe this. This is a big marina, and you don't even have to go inside the marina because it looks like you side tied on the outside of the marina. Of course, it would really depend on the weather. If the weather, if you're, uh, if the weather was bad, you might come around on the inside and side tie. But there's this long, uh, long um, breakwater on the south uh, east side of the marina uh, and so you just tie up there and there's a little like you said there's a little place right there at the very end of uh, of the entrance to the marina where you clear customs in so that, that makes it very convenient and you said it is it, it's super easy and you said they're uh, they're fairly efficient and fast and uh, and great at it then now huh? Yeah, yeah, there were two, you know, in that one hut, there are two windows you visit, and you just boom, boom, and you're done. There could be a bit of a line. I mean, you do have to, you know, there likely will be other other sailors, other boaters that are checking in and out as well. Um, but, yeah, yeah, that works out really well. And luckily, you know, you're out on that pier. There aren't any – I remember one time, you know, on the opposite end of Croatia, in Sabta, when you check out of there, you know, you're kind of – right on the town wall. And one time I made the mistake, I was checking out and then, uh, I know it takes about an hour, at least down there it does. And I I told my crew, you know, you don't want to just be stuck on the boat, go, go get a coffee or something. But the, the Croatian guys down in Savta were really, really mad when I did that. And so much so that, uh, <laughs> I actually had to go back for one more set of papers uh, from the boat. He says, where's your crew? And, and I said, Oh, they're getting coffee. And he says, oh, and he just unties my line and, and he sends me over for a, for a timeout. He said, you know, go float in the bay for an hour and come back. <laughs> oh, and there's always a lineup to clear down there too. I mean, it's, you, there's room for like three, but one boat to side tie, which is what I did this summer when I came in. And as I'm doing, going through the, uh, I, I got there early in the morning cause I'd sailed over from uh, Brindisi and I arrived at like, um, Oh, I arrived at, seven in the morning before anybody else and went in there and side tied and uh and then finally the the customs opens up and i'm side tied there and go through my customs and by the time i get back the winds popped up and there's like five other boats circling around trying to get into clear customs themselves and if i'd if i'd backed in it uh, i could have they could have let three boats in there but i didn't realize there was that many boats coming and going but Soft hut is a, is a headache to clear in and out of. I agree with you on that. It is. It's just that limited mooring space. So up here in Umag, it's such a pleasure. I mean, that long, long, long pier, just an easy side tie. You don't have to climb up a wall even or anything. You know, it's, it's just, yeah, it's really well set up. So Do they charge, you know, you, you, do they charge you to tie up? Now, in, in Soft hut, I tied up, and they charged me 100 kuna just to tie up to clear in last, last summer. 
you know, Franz, if you're going to bring that up, okay, then, I, then we got to keep telling Sabtat's story. So <laughs> I also noticed, I mean, I've been in and out of Sabtat a few times, but the most recent time I exited Croatia in Sabtat heading south, um, yeah, I did my paperwork and I came back to the boat. This was a different year than when I, they got mad at me for sending my crew to get coffee. Uh, so this is a different year. So I know I made my crew stay on the boat. I went to the paperwork. I came back. And then suddenly this guy, you know, who had kind of directed us to, 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 to more, he says, okay, there's a 100, 100 kuna charge. I'm like, what? Like, I'd never heard of that before. This is completely strange. So, yeah, we discussed it for a while, and I, okay, I gave him the 100 kuna. Then he showed me the sign. He says, yeah, you don't really have a choice because there's a sign, and the rule is you cannot leave your boat until your boat is secured. So meaning you can't just take your own line, kind of jump on shore, and tie your line off, right, because you're not secure. Your boat isn't secure yet. Oh, really? So. So that's how. So what I believe these are some contractors or some concessionaires that the uh, customs people hired to kind of just manage uh, the, the 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 pier. Mm. So, but so I was so mad giving him a hundred kuna because it's just like Croatia, just like ah, they, they don't. It doesn't end the, the surprise charges you get here and there. Just yeah. like cruisers kind of hate Croatia. Yeah, exactly. I've gotten used to most of those, but yeah, you're this, used was, to this was the new one. Yeah, and in Greece, there's never these charges. They're, 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 you know, they, they might hit you up once in a while in Greece, but as a general rule, it's uh, it, it's a lot of work for nothing, and the, the policemen, port police, don't want to bother with it because yeah, they don't get paid any extra for collecting seven euros here and there. But uh, yeah, different mentality in Croatia. Yeah, so he uh, he got my hundred kuna. What is that these days? That's uh, about sixteen dollars, I think. Yeah. Yeah, sixteen bucks. And uh, so, and that summer I was exiting Croatia to do a little bit of a tour in Montenegro. And when I came back in, you know, at the end, I did my two three weeks in Montenegro. Came back up into Croatia. Had to check in again. But this time I organized. I told my crewmate, okay, so we dropped our anchor, we're backing up against the, the key, and then we got our line in our hand. I had my crewmate hang off. I don't have a swim platform, so he's kind of hanging off the ladder on the back of the boat with the line in his hand. And then the you know this guy on shore, okay, hand me your line. I said, no, don't touch my line, please. And I have my crew. He lassos the bollard, and then you know brings the line back and ties us off. Mm-hmm. So at that point, our boat is secured. And I proceed as skipper with my crew's passports to step off the boat and do my paperwork. Because I was trying to get around the rule about, you know, you cannot step off until your vessel is secured. Okay, so, uh-huh. Luckily, my buddy was so clever, was so good at lassoing the bollard um, that, you know, he lassoed it, tied off. There we are. We're secured without any assistance. So I did get out of having to pay for the uh, special line handling, uh, although they did... <laughs> They did have a word with me about, you know, following the rules. Okay, so I've got I, that's my plan for next summer is basically to clear out at Sovtot, go down to Montenegro, sail around Montenegro, start my clock over because it's not part of the EU, and then come back in and clear in back in Sovtot. So that's the way to overcome the uh, the hundred kuna rule is if you can if you have somebody skilled enough to uh, <laughs> to lasso the bullard then. Huh? Yeah, as long as you don't step off the boat before the boat is secured. All right. Okay. So that's the key. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's oh, it's ridiculous down there. So but anyway, that's that's a that's a Savtat story. That's the other end of Croatia. So but, yeah, but the, up in Uma again, it's a piece of cake. They don't charge you to get off the boat and go clear in and out then. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so so once you're done with your paperwork at UMA, you gotta you gotta get out of there. You know, Croatians yeah. do not let you stick around. You nope. cannot no go dilly get dally. that final coffee. That's right. No dilly, no swim, no nothing. You you gotta just get out of there immediately. And at that point, for you, Franz, I mean, you, well, what I did and what I would do if you're that close is continue into Slovenia. This is just another, I don't know, 15 miles or so after Umag, you get into Piran in Slovenia, which is an awesome little town, this cute little harbor. You have to check in because, so Croatia is in the EU, but it's not in the Schengen zone. So you do have to very specifically check in in Slovenia. So, okay. but once you've done that, you are in the Schengen zone, which covers you through all of Europe. Okay. So that Co- also covers you. Hmm? Now walk me through the process of checking in. So as you approach Piran, there's mm-hmm. a special area. There's kind of a, a, a custom zone within the marina. Okay. So you have to put your boat there first. You can't go take a normal marina spot and walk over. you got to take the, the, uh, the, the custom zone. And then there's a little office, uh, again, right there. One guy kind of handles everything. They're pretty nice about it. Okay, and, so I'm looking and, at the harbor, and, uh, and you had come in. There's a breakwater on the southwest side. You're coming in, heading up northeast. And, uh, and it, so it's, is it, is it the, the breakwater on the, the left as you enter or is it on the right? Because I see your track here. Your green track <laughs> goes right up to the, uh, the breakwater on the left side or the, north, uh, the northwest breakwater. And, Which uh, is where we spent the night. So okay. that's where we ended up. Okay. Um, but the customs, there's a little round structure in the very southern part of the, uh, oh, of the marina. Okay, I see that. Uh-huh. That round structure is where the, uh, the customs and police office is, uh, is located. Okay, so you probably come in on that breakwater just, just right by there, back into that, tie up close to that structure is where I guess they, they would want you to be then. Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, getting my mental map ready for this summer then. Okay, good. <laughs> so is there a fee, yeah. is there a fee for uh, clearing in? There is no fee for, for clearing in, no. Okay, not like Croatia where they, they nick you for your cruising permit and everything else then. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. no fee. You're in. It's a piece of cake. Um, and like I said, you're cleared then. Uh, you're fine to get to Italy too. All right, okay. So from Piron, we got, what, about a 50-mile 50, 50 uh, hop over to Venice then? Yeah, that's how I did it. And you can all, there are also... T- spots in Slovenia you could check out if you wanted to, Isola and Kobe. You know, Slovenia has the smallest coastline you can imagine. In fact, it's even actually a big dispute between Croatia and Slovenia about you know, who, whose water is whose. So, <laughs> but um, but you, you could check out some other stuff in Slovenia while you're there. Um, I haven't yet, so I ended up doing the straight shot 50 miles Piran to the, uh, to the entrance of the Venice Lagoon. So you could break up that 50-mile trip. There are some ports in Italy on the way. Um, which I visited in 2009, but in 2014 we just decided to just, you know, start at the break of dawn and then just do the 50 miles, 50 miles across. Okay, yeah, all right. So now, all right, so now we're in Venice. Um, you just pulled into the main marina in Venice, then. Yeah. So, so here's a strategy for Venice. So probably you got up really early. You've been sailing 50 miles. You're getting in a bit, you know, late in the afternoon, and what I've done, instead of going all the way straight into the hubbub and the, and the expense of getting a berth in Venice, I have actually taken a right turn mm-hmm. and gone to one of the smaller uh, places called Burano. 
which okay, is a, and I see that I can see your green track taking me over there. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, Burano is like this little tiny cousin of Venice. It's it's a, this colorful little place. They have little canals also, um, and it's just a neat little spot. And you can side tie for free. Oh, uh, really? Even <laughs> middle of the high season. Middle of the high season. We're just side tying for free. And if you actually if you really zoom in and maybe take a screenshot and print it out, you'll, you'll see where to go this summer if you happen to do the same thing. But I highly recommend it. Uh, yeah, Toronto I can see is, where your green, uh, your green marker went. Is that where you, on the southwest, southwest side of the Burano? Is that where we're talking about? Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah, that little spot, that little thumbtack right there, that mm -hmm. is where we ended up. Okay. And, and so if people have been to Venice for a few days, they've probably, you know, a lot of people have maybe taken a day trip. You can hop on a ferry and go out to Burano for the day. But, you know, almost everyone goes back. There isn't much accommodations for tourists in Burano. So, you know, after dark, I mean, the place is really peaceful and quiet, which is, you know, going to be a big change from when you get into Venice. Um, but Burano is super. Um, you'll get around. You're going to take so many pictures. It's, it's so picturesque. And um, you, you can even launch the dinghy. I mean, you wouldn't need to launch a dinghy there and go through the canals quite yet. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that extensive. Um, but yeah, but that's a, you know, so you've had your long day, you know, it's free, you know, cause when you get to Venice now, it's going to be, I was paying, I think 70 euro per night, uh, on this last trip. So, but anyway, well, so let's you know, say you get to Burano. Now, now let me ask you a question. Could you side tie there, leave your boat there and just take the ferry over to Venice from Burano? If, if you were smart and you like saving money. Yeah. Yeah. 70 euros a night. Yeah. <laughs> that seems to be prudent to do. <laughs> yeah, you, you know that's um, yeah, that's definitely a better idea than I ever managed to come up with. That uh, that's a really decent plan. Yeah, I mean you can although you, you can go take your boat in and sail in around Venice and then turn around and come back up to Burano too. If you would just want to say you sailed into Venice and but of course you can't go down the Grand. Uh, well, you, you really can only go right there to the sort of go along the front and turn around anyway. Uh, yeah, well. Let's talk a little bit more about the, the whole Venice Lagoon. I mean, this whole, it's, it's a, this massive estuary. <clears throat> of course, it's historic with the town of Venice. But you know, when you first pull in, you know, there, there are three little openings um, you know, to get from the Adriatic Sea into the Venice Lagoon. And, and you know, you've probably, if you're following my track, you've taken the northernmost of the three openings. And as soon as you get inside, it's just a whole other world. I mean, there's, it's just you have watercraft of all types, you know, going in and out every direction. You have cruise ships going in and out. I mean, it's, it's super exciting. You're not going to do a whole lot of sailing in there. And, and when you do navigate your way to Burano, it's, you know, this is a big, like, floodplain kind of thing. It's crazy. But they dredge certain routes. You're actually following these sets of pilings. So, and you stay between the pilings and it's kind of like going on a road. You just have to follow, you know, follow this road and, and keep a good eye on your depth meter. And, and I never actually figured out which routes were really, you know, sailboat friendly. I had the draft uh, for, uh, you know, for, for a sailboat and which didn't, but I, I did get lucky. So if you follow my tracks, um, yeah, you're going to be fine. Now, did you, um, so, what, what do you draw? I draw five feet. What do you draw? You know, I'm not much more than that, maybe 5'2", okay. something right. like that. All right. Yeah, which, is, which definitely helps <laughs> in, around Venice. So, so you what actually I did, stayed you, in that. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, well, so I, um, yeah, so I spent one night in Burana. You know, we got in kind of late, like mm -hmm. you said. And then the next morning, um, we kind of 
backtracked uh, back into the, yeah we follow these crazy routes through, you know, between the pilings, and we approached uh, you know the main town of Venice, which is something you got to do. You got to approach at least approach the town by sea. It is just <clears throat> it is just amazing. So. I've stayed in two different harbors. I visited Venice twice. Each time I stayed in a different marina. Um, 2009, I stayed in this, uh, I think it's called St. Elena Marina, which is actually part of the main Venice island. So you can actually walk from that marina you know, into all the sites. Um, and on my second time, I stayed at this uh, San Giorgio Island, which is, they got this little yacht club marina thing. Um, and you're just opposite St. Mark's Square. I mean, yeah, and I've, there. I've, I've, I've been, when I've visited Venice before, I've actually taken a ferry over there to look at that, and I thought, wow, I wonder if I'd ever bring my boat in and, and come right to here. And, and that is, uh, that's right by, isn't it right by one of the big towers right there? There is. There's a, there's a massive old cathedral church, some something or other right there, and it's, I mean, it's magical. You know, when we pulled in in 2014, and you'll see that on the green, the green track. Mm-hmm. Um, we and, and same with the other marine. We didn't make any appointment. And we, we arrived, you know, more or less early mid-August. Um, we didn't make any advance arrangements. Um, but in both cases, they, they had space for us. And yeah, and this San Giorgio Marina, it was. I mean, treat yourself. I'd say get your boat in there. Really, really treat yourself because it's it's awesome. Now what, also, now, now, what other marina did you... St- oh, the other one just around the corner there. I see the other marina there, right on the... Okay, yeah, I see that one. But I don't see your track going into that one. I might not have that track opened up yet. If you click on the 2009 uh, folder there on the left side of Google Earth, um, mm-hmm. then a, a skinny white line will show up, and you'll see where I stayed for that. Oh, there we go. Yeah, oh, okay, there it is. There it is. Now I see it coming in there. Okay. So, now the nice thing about that other, you know, the... The marine I stayed in two thousand nine is the St. Elena one. You can walk. You can walk into town. Yeah, um, yeah. And one problem in, with me is that um, I like to go to the bars, and, and inevitably I'm coming back kind of late from things. <laughs> and and that island, San Giorgio. If you put your boat there, maybe you don't have to worry about this. But at a certain point, you know, the little ferries, you know, they don't run anymore. So. So one night we got kind of stuck, and we came back. I don't know. This was four or five in the morning, and we were just beat. And we're standing there at St. Mark's Square, looking across at the boat, and like, you know, and there's no way to get there. There's no. And so we approach this. So there's this guy in a, in a water taxi, one of these fancy wooden water taxis, really well varnished, and he wants forty euros to take us across. And this is about a, I don't know, a one ninety second trip. So three minutes round trip, of course, and he wanted forty euros. Well, did, oh, did you negotiate him down? I mean, you seem to be pretty good at negotiations. <laughs> we tried. We said, no way. And we just walked away. <laughs> but I think he knew better. He knew we were not going to find any other way to get out there. So we, we looked all around for some other alternative. You know, I don't know. We weren't going to hijack a condola or anything like that. Um, now, but then eventually we, we, we went back to him and, and just gave in, gave him the 40 euros and just sucked it up. Okay, and I turned on this one yellow track. It looks like that's your dinghy route through the city. That's the other awesome thing. When you're in Venice with your own yacht and you have a dinghy, hopefully with an outboard, uh-huh. you do. Uh-huh. Yeah. You, you got to tour the din- you got to tour the canals by dinghy. It's it's amazing. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That'll be a lot of fun. I see you just explored the whole damn city everywhere. I mean, I see these yellow tracks going everywhere. 
<laughs> oh yeah, if, yeah. On the left side for the listeners, you know, if you click on it's something Venice by dinghy, I think it's if you hit the yep. check mark on mm-hmm. that. I, I check that. Yeah, I thought, wow, this looks I mean, like a lot of fun. <laughs> you just go in there and get lost, you know. And we did it from the San Giorgio Marina too. We launched a dinghy, and I don't. I have a kind of a fiberglass bottom dinghy. You know, I have a pretty solid dinghy because um, when you cross over from that San Giorgio Island to to St. Mark's Square, I mean, there's there's a lot of wash. There's a lot of wakes from. Mm-hmm boats cruise ships all that you know so um but so so but yeah my dinghy handled just fine and yeah you cross over and then yeah just meandered through all those little canals just just amazing now did you could it be possible to take uh if you want to go hop the bars to to take your dinghy across and tie it up somewhere or would uh, is there no place to tie up the dinghy in venice there are places to tie up the dinghy. Um, I think the reason we didn't do that is because we just didn't feel like crossing back in the dark. Okay, okay. There's there's a lot of a lot of boat traffic day and night, and just having a little dinghy, even if we held a little some kind of little lantern or something. Yeah, we didn't want to do that at night. So okay. We yeah. have some sense sometimes. <laughs> well, less sense after when you're coming back at four in the morning. So. <laughs> yeah. So, but and now normal tourists now you can't just go to Venice with your own like blow up toy boat and just throw it in the canals and, and and start paddling around, right? Right. I think and and I'm not very clear on who is actually allowed and not allowed to do this, but my understanding is if you are visiting Venice uh, visiting Venice by yacht and you have a tender belonging to that yacht, then you are welcome to to use those waterways. Yeah, I was walking around Venice one time and I did see a dinghy from another yacht puttering around through the canals and i thought now that's the way to see venice right there yeah, yeah. oh it is it is it's 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 the best really the best so <laughs> allocate a couple of days for that i mean i could do that day after day i'm sure yeah okay well it sounds like venice is good for about uh, three or four days just uh yeah just checking it out easily easily yeah all right so now all right that's great great information on venice and I, I sort of hate to share this with other people, so so Bruno Island is going to be uh, crowded this summer when I go there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's talk about other other places along the Italian coastline that you like, because I see different tracks of you coming down the coastline. So there must be a few places in Italy that uh, that you enjoy visiting. So let's talk about a couple of those before we call it a podcast. Yeah. Well, you know, when, when you're done with Venice, I spent five nights my first time, uh, I guess two or three nights the second time. But when you're done with Venice, um, I followed, there's a route south you can take that's sort of inside. If you see what separates the Adriatic from the Venice Lagoon is a, is a really narrow little spit of land. Um, and, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and you can follow this. if you, There are these routes behind that break, or not breakwater, but that, I don't know spit of land and you, you follow that route it's kind of like maybe going down the intercoastal waterway uh, on the east coast here in the u.s um but you go down you know, it's all flat and protected lots of interesting things to you know to see you can sort of stop here and there but we follow that down there's another town called uh, kyoja which is kind of the very southern tip of the whole venice lagoon oh yeah i just zoomed in on it i'm following your track down here okay yeah, and that's and that was the perfect you know kind of first day out of Venice. You know, just stay behind the you know inside the lagoon, get down to Kyoja. That's also a really cool spot to see. Um, and then you know after a night there, 
Then you take you know, that southernmost gate that exits the lagoon out in the Adriatic. Um, and in fact, those gates, I call them gates now because they're actually building, these are flood control measures that they've been building you know, controversially for, for years now, costing billions of euros. But you know, we've seen on TV Venice you know, floods once in a while. Um, and it's basically the Adriatic Sea. You have these storms from the south that are just kind of pushing, you know, you know, pushing water up into the Adriatic, raising the, the, the sea levels. And you'll see St. Mark's Square just completely, you know, covered in water. Mm-hmm. So they're building these three gates that will then be able to, you know, hold back the Adriatic Sea when necessary. Just basically as a measure to, to save Venice because mm-hmm. Venice okay. is probably sinking at the same time as, as the water. Yeah, rising. I've actually watched some of those, uh, some of those, uh, documentaries but i've never actually visualized where the gates were going now i can see the one gate where you entered on your green green track that would be where one gate would be i would assume and then this would be another gate and another one in between those two there's another entryway between there's those two so okay so those are the yeah three you got gates. the three yeah the three openings mm-hmm. and and they're hoping that you know they, that's going to hold back the Adriatic, you know, in those times of, of, of high water so, yeah, it may but. for a while and then nature will take over just like it does in the mississippi so <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so so you're leaving out that uh, that one gate. You're back in the open Adriatic. Um, east coast of Italy kind of suffers from being very very low lying, not really having any islands or hardly any. Uh, all the ports are man made, so it's it's not a popular cruising ground. Um, you know, having said that, I've had a great time going going down this coast. And you see, in 2014, we say we made a long haul from Chioggia down to Ravenna. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm Ravenna following is, that, um, and that looks familiar because Jack Andrews went over there too. So he talked about going in there. So go ahead and tell yeah, me. Yeah, Ravenna is like you pull in; it's a massive marina. I remember parked there. I, I timed it. We were we, we were assigned a slip. The time it took from the slip to actually exiting the gate and stepping onto the real land, it was a five minute walk. It was a, <laughs> a long distance when you're walking on floating docks. Oh yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah. Place yeah. is massive. Uh, inland of Ravenna is the actual town of Ravenna, and that's a big UNESCO thing with, you know, I think five or eight different UNESCO sites based on their the mosaics in their old in their old cathedrals. So that's a, that's north of the entrance. Then is that where the main town of Venice of of, of this town is? Port, Good question. Porto, I remember we took a Porto Garibaldi. Porto Garibaldi is that what? What you know, we stopped there in '09 on the way north. Though I didn't go back to Garibaldi in 2014. Oh, so, it it, it so, wasn't that interesting. So I'm not I'm okay. So I've got to skip that. I, I was looking at Porto Garibaldi. So okay, there's Ravenna. Now I, now I'm zooming into Ravenna. Okay, all right. Oh yeah. Okay. So that the main town is right there. Just, but yeah, that is a massive marina. That's huge. And I see, <laughs> is, I see your is. I see your track going all over that marina. So you. Came in, turned around, came around, went to a different spot, and finally I see your spot way down there. Okay, this is this is great information. Looking at your tracks, that helps a lot. <laughs> yeah, I've kind of I've been pretty religious about uh, you know I have my uh, you know my charting software running, and I guess every minute it plots a point, and at the end of each day or the end of each week or whatever crew I have, you know I kind of archive that, and then you know, I can go back and review it, and it's yeah, it's super handy. Love having it. Yeah, okay. So Ravenna, the town of Ravenna is pretty interesting to stop and visit then. Okay, great. So now that's, how far is that from where you stopped at Venice? Let's let's do a quick measurement so we've got an estimate here. Uh, okay. 
we can say from leaving that Kyoja. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a long haul. It was another fifty mile day to get uh, to get down there. I remember we were approaching Ravenna, and somehow we started getting the southwest wind. And I was having a bit of a hard time, you know, pointing high enough. And you know, there, there's tons of fetch, so we, you know, I, was, I, was, I don't know. I was hoping I wouldn't have to tack back out to sea. We were really holding on, but but we we did finally make it without, you know, we we held course. Just, just in time. Just made the breakwater in time. Yep, that looks like a full day. Yep, and hopefully the wind is from the north, so you can be popping down the coast. We'll see. Yeah, that's what we were hoping for until the southwesterly came in. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if it's in September, it, it's going to be uh, southerlies. If it's if it's uh, August or uh, July or August, it's probably going to be northerlies. So, yeah, yeah. So, and then. The rest of the Italian coast, I mean, all the, all the stops, are, or most of the places we went were, were really cool. You know, from a nautical experience, if you're thinking of islands and swimming and anchoring out, yeah, you're not going to do any of that. Um, but the towns, the towns are interesting. And, and what I also like is that, you know, these, Ravenna doesn't have a lot of, like, foreign tourism, especially you know, people who live in Ravenna. They go out to where the marina is you know, at night to party. All the bars are out there and mm-hmm. everything. And, um, and there aren't that many tourists, you know. It's a funny thing. I'd seen all these smaller Italian towns like Ravenna before, before I ever got to Venice. Venice, I really felt like the Italians were really out to get you, you know, overcharging you for things. And because up till that point, I had such a good impression of the Italians. They were so warm and welcoming and fair, you know, in all these smaller places. But, you know, when you have that concentration of tourism, you know, it just becomes it becomes it becomes a fight for the tourist dollar. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Oh, I, so it's kind of refreshing. I, I've never. Uh, I've, I remember this one time I was walking around Venice in San, San Marcos Square, you know, where they have all these outdoor cafes, and the American tourists are sitting there, having their uh, their cappuccino and enjoying it. And I just remember watching. It was in the evening, and they uh, they asked the waiter for the bill, and it was just an astounding amount of money, just an astounding amount of money for sitting there and having a cup of coffee. And the American, I could see the people at the table just you couldn't believe this. I said, well, explain this to him. And the, the waiter just was, a, oh, so much for this, so much for that. So I went around the table and told them every, every amount, and, uh, and they were just astounded at how much it cost them. And I thought the, the waiter just performed magnificently, and <laughs> the tourists just assumed it was going to be a reasonable fee, and it is not. It is not reasonable <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> Yeah, you know the the smaller or the you know the the less the less profile town, lower profile towns in Italy. Are just yeah, I enjoy so much more. Just the people are nicer. Uh, yeah, I like I you know, and I I like the less touristed towns. So this would be one I want to check out, Ravenna. So I'll take another picture of this one here and add it to my file. So, <laughs> all right. You know, further down the coast, uh, Rimini is is kind of a main spot. That's been a really famous party town for 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 decades and uh you know of course me and my buddies yeah had a lot of fun there and um i don't know we've bounced into a couple of the of these you know of, of these other little marina towns on the way south and as you make your way towards ancona which is kind of a little it's kind of a tip it kind of sticks out there uh from ancona it's a pretty you know that's kind of one of your closest points to get back to croatia so you'll see in 2014 that's uh that's pretty much where I crossed. So, the so you town had some, just so you had of, some pretty long tracks here. It looks like it's, uh, yeah. You actually, I was looking at two white tracks. One's more direct, 
and then the one's zigzagging in and out a little bit. So, uh, yeah, Ancona. So did you stop there, or was, it, was there much to see in Ancona? I have not uh, gone all the way to Ancona yet. Okay, You'll see I, the see, green I see you. I see 14. you. Yeah, I see you. Uh, I'm looking at the 2009 line, I think. <laughs> and you, and tacked, you, tacked, you tacked in, but you didn't come in there. Okay. Yeah, you know, Ancona and Pescara, these are really big, I mean, they're big industrial ports. And okay. there's just, it's not very sexy, you know. I see you did pull into Numana, a little, little harbor of Numana. N-U-M-A-N-A. That's a cute little place. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that was 2009. That's one of these just, just cute little places. Again, it's, it's a man-made marina. Um, and there will be beaches, plenty of beaches. Actually, what Croatia doesn't have when Italy does is beaches. And it's funny, as you sail along this coast, you look ashore, and you don't really see the sand. You just see these color-coordinated rows and rows of umbrellas, beach umbrellas. I mean, these beaches are packed in, in this in the summer especially august <laughs> it is and it's funny because you can see that the pattern of the umbrellas changes as each proprietor has their sort of section yeah and then they so, try, yeah and then you you pay for the umbrella and the, the bed you lay on during the day yeah okay yeah or these italians will book a whole umbrella for 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 the month or for a week or two weeks and then they have a little locker back at the little the, the big Lido facility, you know, behind the beach. It's, it's, it's quite an industry. Beach tourism in Italy is a very interesting industry. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I've never quite understood it, but again, I have a boat, so I don't have to worry about it. So, okay. Yeah, lucky us. Yeah. No traffic and all that. Yeah, yep. All right, so then I'm following. I don't, oh, here's your green track. Okay, now I finally got that turned on. So it's from Senegalia, that's when you headed across there. Oh, yeah. okay. And you also headed across from, uh, it looks like there's an orange line here where you headed across from near Fano. Yeah. You know, Fano was funny. We left Fano. We tried to cross, but the weather just beat us back. Actually, that's how we ended up in Senegalia because okay. we were just getting kind of beat up. We saw tons of lightning on the horizon. We said, screw this. And we just turned back, had a really nice broad reach, pulled into Senegalia in the dark and uh, tried again the next day. Oh, okay. The next day will work much better. <laughs> so a few bailout spots along the way if you need to. And then this white track heads farther on south then. Okay, and that's where you, yeah, you've gone back and forth several places along here, it looks like. Okay. Oh, and you got and down some islands here. What are these islands like here? Uh, you're probably talking about the Tremedy Islands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those, those are a real gem. And, and you know, Franz, while you're now in the Adriatic for another season or two, Try to stop at the Tremedy Islands. Um, you need good weather to, to stay there. Um, holding's really poor, so you got to score a, a mooring buoy. Um, but it's a cluster of islands. One has this amazing old uh, fortress on it. Um, the other is the island where most people stay. And my favorite thing is actually to dinghy around the main island because there are just these caves, grottos. Uh, just yeah, it's just beautiful. Really, really nice. Oh, okay. so, and, and all Italians, you know, there's no foreign tourists there. It's, it's only Italians, which is, so it's kind of fun when, you know, when, yeah. when they encounter uh, Americans, they're, oh, wow, you know, so all the way in the Tremedy Islands from America, and they get really, they get impressed. Now, now I see you went into Vesti. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Is there much so there? Viesta is, Viesta, okay. yeah, Viesta is, is super cool. Yeah, yeah, def definitely a good stop. And it's, Actually, you know, that's 
really on the spur of, of the of the of, of Italy, you know, the kind of the spur of the boot, right? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. a common drop off point because that's really kind of the closest point to some to certain spots in Croatia. So so if people are coming up maybe the Italian coast and want to cross over to, to Croatia, they typically do that from Fiesta. Okay. If they haven't already done it down in Otranto. So. Okay. That's oops. Then I think it's only 65 miles from Viesta up to Yeah, and this then it's a day Croatia. trip instead of an overnight trip where you from Brindisi. So, okay. That's, uh, I was going to do a... Let's, let's see how long this is from uh, Viesta to the... Where, is it, where would you clear in coming back to uh, Croatia from Viesta? Because you're going to have to clear in at the closest port, right? So I see you've got a cup. Oh, you soft top. Okay, so soft top is where you would clear in again. Uh, but I no, s- no, I would, I would clear in. You have two choices. Uh, either on the island of Vis, there's yeah. a town called Komisha, and okay. Vis is mm-hmm. it, or Vela Luca on Korchula. Those are your two check-in options when you're coming straight from Viesta. I did it in Komisha on the island of Vis. Okay, yeah, I just zoomed in on that, and I see you've been there. Oh. Several times in, okay, yeah, that would be better. I'd out of yeah, be better. I guess I've never visited that island anyway, so that'd be the one I'd want to stop in at. Is that an island worth visiting anyway? Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is one of the yeah, definitely one of the highlight islands there uh, in that part of Croatia. I'm showing 68 miles, so okay. I've done it as an overnight instead of trying to stress and, and, and squeeze it into you know we got what 15 hours of no 18 hours of daylight almost mm-hmm. no. 16, 16 hours of daylight. So okay, so it, it's doable, but you just you just have to get up very very early, preferably maybe even a couple hours before sunrise. All right. Now, is there a place to anchor there, or are you going to pick up a mooring buoy there? In Komisha, when you check in, you there's a there's a key, there's a town pier that you can mm-hmm. tie to, or you can anchor. Okay, okay, but they're not like soft out. They're not going to charge you a hundred kuna to. Well, they might charge you 100 kuna, but that might be for the night instead of just to come in and clear customs in. Yeah, you know, that's again, you know, Savtat Umag, you know, those are the official ports, but this is a seasonal port, um, and they're much friendlier. They're so much more relaxed. I mean, I just tied up and walked. Or they, they weren't fussy about where exactly I put the boat or anything like that. So, yeah, so much easier. Okay, all right. Well, this is fantastic information. This really gives me thoughts of places to go this summer. And maybe somewhere along the way we'll catch up and uh, meet yeah, face to so. face. That'd be great. Hey, I'll be on the water this uh, you know most of August and part of July. So I'm hoping hope we can definitely cross paths. Well, when I get my little... when I get my schedule laid out, I'll send you uh, I'll send you a copy of it so you sort of know where I'm going to be approximately the same what time. And and when I get over to Croatia, of course, I'll get a local phone number and then I'll email that to you so it'll be easier to get a hold of me when I'm sailing around. Mm-hmm. Hey, sounds great. No, looking forward to seeing you, uh, meeting you finally after all these years, and, and ideally so, on the water with our own boats. That's right. Thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate the two efforts for the second podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, Franz, happy to, man. Great uh, talking to you. All right. Now, next summer, next year, let's catch up on this last summer and find out what your adventures were, okay? So let's keep in touch. Try to do, a, try to do an episode a year, or every, every couple years at least, okay? Maybe do one in person this summer. All right. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Talk Very good, friends. Take care. Life is short. 
In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.